This is Pastor William. On behalf of the members of Providence Baptist Church, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and thank you for joining us. It is our joy to share God's truth, and we trust that the preaching of God's Word will always bless His people. But we humbly remind you that no recording can ever replace biblical corporate worship or true Christian fellowship. So we encourage everyone everywhere to commit themselves to the service of God's kingdom in a local church. And we pray that the Lord keep and bless you as you continue to earnestly seek Him. Amen. Amen. Please be seated and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, we read through some of it this morning because I wanted those things fresh upon your mind. Beginning in Hebrews 5, um, where the author was uh, attributing to, that, uh, to Christ the great high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. But he had to pause there, and he rebukes his readers for being dull of hearing. Um, and then he goes on to ex, uh, exhort, exhort them to maturity and warns them of the sin of apostasy. And uh, then he comes here, then arrive where we are here this morning, where we see an encouragement that he gives to them, beginning in verse uh, 9 of Hebrews chapter 6. So read with me verses 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience Inherit the promises. So here he's uh, giving them some encouragement. He has rebuked them for being dull of hearing. uh, Told them they need to move on to maturity. Warned them of the terrible sin of apostasy. And that it is impossible to restore those who have tasted of the the goodness of God. And have uh, turned and walked away from it. And then they, they... are rejecting Christ. They understand and they are rejecting Christ. And then he says, though we speak this way, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. So after he has given such a harsh rebuke, such a stern warning, the author is trying to encourage his readers. Now, this should be in no way interpreted to soften the serious nature of the rebuke or the the warning about apostasy. If anything, it shows just how badly these struggling Christians needed um, the encouragement. Their spiritual danger was not calculated on their part. It was, well, it was laziness, as we've talked about in previous sermons. It was laziness. It was apathy towards the Word of God. They were dull of hearing. They needed the warning. And like any of us, it is all too easy to fall into a sense of discouragement and be tempted to despair when we discover our failures or when someone else points them out to us. This also shows 
the love that this author has for his audience. He knew this audience. He knew these Christians. He cared for these people. And he's not afraid to speak a hard word to them when it is necessary. But he's, off, he's, he's also careful to speak lovingly when it is needed. So he spoke a hard word, but now they need the love and the encouragement. It is true that people can often um, respond in a very defensive and angry manner when you bring a rebuke to them. But it's also true that people can accept a harsh rebuke when they know of your love for them, when they are confident that you have love in your heart for them, they can accept an honest rebuke. And he continues on. He says, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Now, though he spoke so severely, the author is confident that his readers will press on to the maturity that he is calling them to, this maturity in their faith. And as we've mentioned in pre- previously, this pursuit of maturity is one of the things that accompanies salvation. Things that stagnate die. And so people who go to church and they reach this point of stagnation, they fall away because there's no life there. This is what Scripture tells us in the parable of the four so- soils. Some sprouted up quickly, but there was no roots or they grow up and the, uh, the, the thorns and thistles of this world choke them out. But here in verse 9, the author not only encourages his readers, but he also expresses his confidence in their future. And in the next verse, we see why he has such confidence. Verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. So his confidence, brothers and sisters, his confidence in their future and in their faith is rooted in two things. Do you see him there? They're rooted in two things. First, he sees fruit in their life. He sees the fruit of the Spirit in their life. And he also knows of God's faithfulness. So his confidence in their future rests on those two things. That he sees the fruit of the Spirit working in them and that he knows God's faithfulness. Recall from last week that as we were in what we read earlier in verses 7 and 8, how it compares the fruitful soil that produces a useful crop and a dead soil that produces thorns and thistles. Here in verse 10, the author is reminding them of the work and the love that he sees in their congregation. And this fills him with hope and in their with hope and confidence in their future. And brothers and sisters, this is immensely important. All of these things do not break this, this narrative up, but all of these things are connected. The author knows that the fruit of the Spirit is present in their life, and he sees it there. Remember what uh, Paul says is um, the the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. That the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Is this how people would describe you? 
Is this what you see in in your own lives? Is the Word of God producing fruit in your life? I'm not asking you if you are perfect in your walk. I'm asking you if you see any fruit in your life. Scripture commands us to examine ourselves. What do you think we're looking for? We're looking for the fruit of the Spirit. Scripture tells us that during this age, during this church age, there will be wheat and there will be tares. And we know that during this church age, that in your life there will be sin and there will be righteousness. It is your sin and it is Christ's righteousness. Now don't spend all of your time dwelling upon your sin. Acknowledge it. Confess it. Repent of it. Then pursue Christ and His righteousness. It is offered to you freely. Everything that you need is in Christ. I want you to understand this battle. Because Scripture says that it is a battle. In Galatians 5, Paul also lists the works of the flesh. The sins are abounding. He lists the fruits of the Spirit in contrast to that. But both are present in all men. Not that the fruit of the Spirit is present in the lost, but an unbeliever can find joy and peace in this world. They don't have an abiding joy, but they can find peace, they can find some comfort, they can find some happiness, because they're content with the things of this world. And if they have those things, they have their contentment. Isn't that not what the Lord told the Pharisees? Those who stand and, and, uh, and, and, and pontificate on the law and they give these great eloquent prayers on the street corners so that men can hear them, they have their gift. They have their reward. That's what they want. They have it and they can be content with it. And a, and a, and a believer has sin in his life. The unbeliever can find joy and peace in this world. It is not an eternal abiding joy. It is not the joy of the Spirit. It is not the fruit of the Spirit. It is a counterfeit. It is a counterfeit that Satan allows them to have because he doesn't want them thinking about the future. He doesn't want them thinking about eternity. But the unbeliever will also have outbursts of anger and be overcome by his passions like any other man or woman. And they may or, not, may or may not be discouraged or, or, or have any uh, guilt about that. But, and this is what I really want you to get, this battle, this internal spiritual battle. When you profess faith in Jesus Christ and trust in God, then the enemy targets you. He targets you for attack. Satan wants to exaggerate the evils of your flesh. He wants to exaggerate your sin. So he tempts you with the things of this world. He torments your thoughts and stirs up doubt and lust within you. Things that make a believer 
uncomfortable. And if he can, he will keep driving you away. He will keep driving you into that that discomfort until you become comfortable in it. He wants you to doubt. But the mark of the believer is the desire and the effort to resist those things and to follow the leading of the Spirit. I know it's sort of cliche. We see it in movies. You've got the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder and they're both competing, trying to get your attention and get you to do what they want you to do. But this is the spiritual battle that I'm talking about. There is the Spirit dwelling in you. The Word of God that you have read that dwells in you that's that's uh, weighing upon your conscience, trying to get you to follow the leading of the Spirit. And then there is your flesh. There is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And we must battle against it. That's the mark of a Christian. It's not that they live a sinless life. It's that when they are sinful, they are convicted of it and they repent of it. It's how they respond to their sin that makes them a believer. It is a response to sin that is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. So when I ask you if the Word of God is producing fruit in your life, I am asking, do you see these qualities growing in your life? Is hate giving way to love? Is that anger that you feel towards somebody for something they've done giving way to compassion? Does sorrow and anxiety give way to joy and peace? Does agitation and malice give way to patience and kindness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness? I'm not asking you if you are completely free of hate and sorrow and anxiety and anger. None of us are. We all struggle at some point when we're tired, when we're hungry, when we're stressed, when we're overworked. Those moments where our defenses are low and the enemy can really come in and cause wreak havoc in our lives, especially in our spiritual lives. Those are the times that we need to be prepared for the battle, knowing the word of God, trusting that it helps us. So I'm not asking you if you're free of those things. I'm asking you if those things are dying, if you are putting those things down, if you are battling with them. Do you recognize those emotions when they arise? Do you know what causes them to arise? Do you know how to battle against them? Do you know how to avoid them? Are you working to bring these things under the control of God's Word. As Scripture commands us to, to bring every thought under the the control of the Lord Jesus. Do you feel compelled to be good and faithful and gentle towards others? Even when you don't like them very much. Even if you don't feel like it, even if you would rather ignore them and put them out of your life and or even possibly tell them off. Do you feel compelled to respond as Christ would? 
even if you don't always follow it, brothers and sisters, does your conscience give you a biblical response to the things that come into your life? Especially those moments when you're weak or tired or hungry or stressed out. Do you strive to bring your passions and your emotions under control? Or do you simply give yourself away to them? Do you simply allow yourself to be ruled by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? I'm not asking if you're free of weakness. I'm asking you if you struggle against letting them control you. Do you strive to exercise self-control? Not self-discipline because you have some goal to attain at school or in your career path or in your fitness program. But I'm talking about real self-control so that you're not given over to passions and, and emotions. The point of all of this is there is a real spiritual battle. And remember the, the agrarian uh, analogy that the author gave us, that even good soils need to be cultivated. Are you putting off the old man and putting on the new man? I know this is distracting. Everybody's looking up here. <laughs> I look out here and make eye contact with some of you, and then some of you are like <laughs> counting the ladybugs here. Are you putting off the old man and putting on the new man? Are you trying to live as a Christian? Are you trying to honor Christ? Not that you're working for your salvation. Please don't misunderstand that. I think we all know, being here, that you cannot work for salvation. That the righteousness that you bring are filthy rags. We are the children, remember, and I'm not talking just young, I'm talking children. Compared to God, our intellect is minuscule, our emotional maturity is minuscule. So when, uh, when we bring our righteousness to Christ, to the cross, it's like the infant that comes, that's yanked up, not the infant, but the toddler, that's yanked up all your tulips out of your plant out of your flower bed, root ball and dirt and everything and brings them to mama. Well, it's Christ that takes that dirty righteousness and cleans it up and makes it righteous before God. It is through Christ that we can do anything right. Are we striving to pursue Him? Putting off the old man, putting on the new man, cultivating the Word of God in our lives. The author of Hebrews expresses his confidence in his readers because he sees the fruit of the Spirit working in them. If you can say that these things are true of you, not perfect, not all the time, but are these things true of you? If the answer is yes, then you have reason for the same hope and the same confidence. The author also expresses confidence because he knows that God is not unjust so as to overlook their works and their labors of love. So it's the fruit of the Spirit and confidence in God's faithfulness that gives Him, um, that gives him hope, that gives Him encouragement. And, and He's passing that on to His readers. 
When we are discouraged, we sometimes think that God has forgotten about us. We think that maybe he, he doesn't see, He's forgotten about all that we have done because of my sin. My sin has just washed away my good deeds. But that would be unjust. God would be denying His own nature, denying His own fruit if He were to act in such a way. But sometimes, brothers and sisters, sometimes we fear that God has forgotten our work because what we are really looking for is the attention and the applause of man. It is true that people will forget, sometimes even fail to recognize the work and the labors of love that you pour into them. But God always sees and God never forgets. Look how the author, look how the author puts it here. He says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your works and the love that you have shown, past tense. He remembers what you've done. God is very much aware of the service that you have done in the past for his name. Service shown to him for his honor. God is very much aware of your motivation. He knows what your motives are. He knows what your intentions are. He knows what's in your heart when you do good for others. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name as you still do. Present tense. God is very much aware of what's going on. God knows what you've done in the past. He knows your motives. And He knows what you're continuing to go what you're continuing to do. And for those of you who are really paying attention, you notice I skipped over something. The work and the labor of love is something that has happened and it continues to happen. It is service done in the name of God. But what did I leave out? Your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints. This is service to God's people. Now, I want you to consider this, of course, in the whole story of redemption, but consider it in light of Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Somewhere in the past, some scripture says that a man that won't take care of his own family is worse than an unbeliever. So certainly, he expects people to take responsibility for their families. And he expects us as a family to take care of one another as a church. The idea of love thy neighbor is something often misunderstood in modern churches. Yes, a man is to show love to all women. But he is to love his wife in a special and exclusive way like no other woman. And so Christians are to show love to all of mankind. But we are to love the church in a special way. Also consider this passage in light of Matthew 25. Matthew 25 verses 34 through 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. 
I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come visit you? And the king will answer to them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Notice what Jesus did not mention here. Remember, this is his, this is uh, uh, first century um, Jerusalem. This was in the Jewish community. Notice what he did not say. He did not mention any grand things. He did not say, inherit the kingdom prepared for you because you translated the Torah into Greek for my people in my name. He did not say, you built hospitals and schools in foreign lands in my name. You wrote best-selling books in my name. Now, those things may all be good. The Lord will judge the motives of your hearts, not me. I'm just telling you what Scripture points out. He did not mention any of those things. He mentioned the small, ordinary things that we do for each other in Christian fellowship. Fulfilling everyday needs. Food, water, clothing. While helping orphanages and giving food to food banks, those are good things in and of themselves. Those alone are not the mark of a biblical church. When I was writing this, I remembered my sister telling me the story of her husband, who at the time, her husband was a, a man struggling with diabetes and it was really wreaking havoc on him at this point in his life. And he was in a car accident one afternoon. I think it was a Friday afternoon. Um, lots of traffic because people are coming back home from work. He's in, a, in an accident. Um, he had to spend time in the hospital, I think, that night. Um, she gets to church the next day and had several people from the church come to her and tell her that they saw the accident. That they saw and recognized his truck and knew it was him. But not one of them stopped. Not one of them stopped to help. Not one of them stopped. They just left it all. Somebody will come along. Somebody else will call the police. Somebody else will call an ambulance. Taryn and I have been members of churches like that. When I was deployed to Iraq, our, Taryn was at home alone with our, our oldest son, and she was pregnant with Rachel. And I think during that entire deployment, correct me if I'm wrong, one person from the church came to cut the grass one time. But I know that that would not be the case with Providence. I have watched you guys. I have watched you guys over the years shower love shower each other with love and support in times of need you can hardly sneeze in this church without somebody bringing you a box of tissues and a bowl of soup i know that you truly care for one another 
I know that you truly love one another. And this is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. If you want to know, if you want to know the mark of a truly healthy church, yes, the doctrine matters. Yes, the worship matters. But watch how the people treat one another. Watch how they treat guests who come to visit. This is a part of what verse 4 was talking about. When the author says, those who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, he's talking about life, biblically loving church, life in a biblically loving church is a true blessing. Now ask yourself, along with the fruit of the Spirit, are you actively participating in that life? number of places in Scripture that tell us, not just Galatians 6.10, a number of places tell us that a mark of the, of the believer is a love for believers. A love for the brethren is a work of the Spirit. Anybody here that has traveled and been away on the Lord's Day and sought out fellowship and worship with another Reformed Baptist congregation who holds to the same confession that we hold to, or a Reformed Presbyterian church that holds to one of the uh, historic creeds and confessions, they know what I'm talking about. It's like being with family. You just go in and you've always been apart. Can I get an amen from those who have traveled? Yes. Brothers and sisters, when Scripture says to examine yourselves, this is part of what we are talking about. Looking for the work of the Spirit. Looking for the fruit of the Spirit in your life and in your heart. The author of Hebrews is telling the readers that he sees this work. He sees the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. And I'm telling you that I believe I see it in you. Even some of you who have not come forth to profess faith and be baptized and join the church, I still believe that I see that Spirit working in you. This should be a source of comfort and encouragement when you hear it from me and you read it in Scripture and you see this in your life. You see the things that we're talking about. The author has confidence in their future because he sees the work of the Spirit in their church and because he knows that God is always faithful to reward that work. Having expressed his confidence, then the author goes on to encourage them more. In verse 11 and 12, he says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Remember our study of Revelation? In every letter to the seven churches, Jesus promises all the blessings of heaven to the ones who remain faithful until the end. Not to the ones who were involved at some point, those are the people that stand on, on the king's left hand and say, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. 
It's about those who persevere to the end. About those who continue in the faith. And here the author is encouraging his readers, urging them to press on. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must keep up this good work. We must keep cultivating that good soil. And the author's desire for his readers is that they would show that same diligent that they, diligence that they had in the beginning, that they would show it now. Notice in verse 12 when he warns them not to be sluggish. Some of your translations might say lazy or slothful. It all means the same thing. And really, what this is the same Greek word that we read in um, chapter 5, verse 11, when he told them that they were dull of hearing. This word means dull. It's the same Greek word. And he's telling them now, he's, you are dull of hearing. Do not become dull in your conduct. Do not become dull in your actions. Press on. And then notice how he equips them for this. He tells them that instead of giving in to discouragement, instead of letting disappointment control you, he tells them to imitate those who have gone before. You know, a smart man learns from his mistakes, right? But a wise man learns from others' mistakes. And God has filled His Word with the mistakes of others so that we can learn from them. God's Word is filled with wisdom in that regard. And we should learn from those who have already found the key to gaining God's promises through faith and patience, as demonstrated by Abraham. And we'll go on to see more of that in, in Hebrews. But this encouragement, this exhortation is not just given to the first century Christian Hebrews. It's given to you and to me. God did not preserve his word, brothers and sisters, so that we would have something entertaining to read while we wait for judgment day. It is given to us to instruct us to guide us, to give us wisdom. And we should be grateful for this. We should be grateful that we can sit down and read about Abraham's life and his experiences as they are recorded and preserved for us. Here, the author says, attributes to them faith and patience. But we can go back and read about Abraham and his faith was not perfect. His patience was not perfect. He didn't wait upon the Lord for that promised son as he should have, but instead tried to take things into his own hand. And though the Lord saved him and Sarah from one time he lied about who his wife was, he didn't have faith to keep from lying the second time. But he was a man of faith. His faith was not perfect. His patience was not perfect. So if we can read the story of Abraham, if we can see that he shared some of our weaknesses, then we can trust that we share some of his faith and patience. We do not have to get wrapped around the axle about when we fail. And this is the main thing I want you to walk away with. 
Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now leading up to this passage, the author has been telling his readers that they are dull of hearing. They are dull of hearing and they are immature. And over the last two sermons, we have looked at the struggles that, that Christians have, that believers have. We've looked at, but we've looked at the true nature of the unforgivable sin, the true nature of apostasy. But our fallen nature causes even the most mature and knowledgeable believers to have doubt and fear for their salvation sometimes. But the author wants his readers to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And I want you all to have that same full assurance of hope until the end. So how do we, how do we get relief from this fear of judgment and have this kind of full assurance? Well, as Zach was talking about this morning in the, in the, uh, in the teaching hour, sometimes people just make up doctrines for that. Just make up whatever it is that makes them feel good so they can have that kind of assurance based off of something that they did. But I'm telling you to follow what Scripture says. We read what Scripture says about those who have faith and we strive to imitate them. It's what the author is telling us. Imitate those who have already walked the path and we can see that they're not perfect. And neither are we, but Christ is. That's where our assurance comes from, knowing Christ. We look for the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And we diligently cultivate those qualities, those characteristics, trying to, to, to put off the old man, put on the new man, fighting against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's where the spiritual battle is. All while seeking God's help through prayer, through fellowship, through thanksgiving, through the word that God has given to us, through all the means of grace that God has given to us. And we look for the work of the Spirit in our lives and we see if we conform to what Scripture says is a Christian. We are image bearers. What do we bear the image of? God. Are we striving to improve that? Not because we're trying to earn our salvation. Not because we're trying to save our skin from the wrath of God. But because we want to be faithful to what He has called us to be, which is an image bearer. This is where assurance comes from. Just like the author of Hebrews was telling his audience. The fruit of the Spirit in your life and God's faithful promises. That's where true assurance comes from. Do you look at your life? I'm talking about the past. Look over your life and tell me. Does the providence of God draw you to Him? 
I have faith and confidence that that is true because you're all sitting here before me this morning. Then trust that God is drawing you to Himself. Why would you not trust that? Then, in examining all of this, you see the fruit and the work of the Spirit in your lives. You see that you, not perfectly, but you try to imitate the faithful and what you see them doing in Scripture. When the Lord praises them, then we can trust that the promises of God are for us, are for you. Because God is always faithful. Hebrews 8.12, when we get to it, we'll expand upon it, but Hebrews 8.12 tells us that every sin is blotted out and they are remembered no more. So the service that you render to God's people in love and in His name is never forgotten. He casts your sins as far away as the east is from the west. So when you stumble, and you will stumble, you may stumble uh, less often as you mature, but you will stumble. And as you get older, those stumbles hurt more. I'm talking about the spiritual ones too. We look at people like, um, like the precious Miss Margie when she was here. And she was so gracious and so loving. You think, how does this woman battle with sin? But she did. She battled with sin. We couldn't see it, but she saw it. She trusted God for it. And the little sin that was there, that was there in her heart at 90 years old, still burdened her. So yes, as we grow more mature, we may sin less, but when we sin, it hurts more. So you will stumble. And when you do, confess it and repent. That act alone should give you a sense of comfort. Because faith and repentance is a gift of the Spirit. We know that. Trust Him. Trust Him. Trust what Scripture says. That if indeed you pass the test, then there's fruit in your life. God's providence is drawing you to Himself then you can trust in God's faithfulness. And you can have confidence and you can have hope for the future. Let us pray.